Well, if you have a Bible today, Exodus chapter 32 through 34 is where we will be. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you, or there's one you can share with somebody close to you. It's on page 75. We're continuing to walk through this story of Exodus, and God has rescued the people. He's drawn them out of slavery in Egypt, and he has brought them to this mountain where he's given them his law. He's drawn them out of slavery. He's drawn them in to worship. He's given them the law and this covenant. And last week, it ended with the people saying, if we don't keep this covenant, it's our life that will pay. If we don't keep this covenant, we're cool with giving our lives. You can have our blood. And today things go terribly wrong. So we're going to look at these passages today in two parts. The first part will be this terrible tragedy, and the second part will be the solution to that tragedy. The people make this calf and begin to worship it. The problem, this tragedy, is summed up with the word idolatry. That's what happens. They worship a false god. And there are three components of idolatry that we see in this little passage. The first is that the people are impatient. Look at verse one. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, that's when they gathered to do this. The word delayed carries with it the idea of being disappointed. Things aren't going the way that they thought they should be going by now. God rescued them out of Egypt. What are we doing here? Why is Moses up there for so long? We don't know what's happened to this guy. Why are we at the mountain? We just sang in the song, you led me out of Egypt, took me to the promised land. And they're like, we're not in the promised land. We're waiting here at the bottom of this mountain. And where is this guy? And so they're impatient. God is not delivering on what they thought a good God would do. And so... That leads them into idolatry. And you can relate to that, can't you? You know what it's like to expect God to have done some things for you and it not happen yet, don't you? You know what it's like for walking with God to be disappointing. You know what it's like to be waiting on God to do something and be frustrated And here's what we need to recognize is that when we are impatient, when we are frustrated at God's timing, we will be tempted to wander from God. Now, that won't always look like switching religions. Like you're going to become, you know, an atheist or some other kind of religion if you get impatient but your focus will drift away from God to something else. That's a very real possibility. Walking with God requires waiting on God. The second component that we see of their idolatry is that the leaders are unfaithful. The leaders are unfaithful. When Moses went up the mountain, he told Aaron, hey, stay down here. You're gonna settle the disputes for the people and I'll be back and keep the law that we just all agreed to. 
but Aaron doesn't keep the law. The people come to Aaron and in verse two, Aaron replied to them, this is his idea. Take off the gold rings that are on your ears. He gets all of them. And then look at verse four. He took the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool and made it into an image of a calf. Now that's not like something that you do in five minutes. That takes effort. And so Aaron, who's supposed to be the leader while Moses is on the mountain, is unfaithful. He doesn't do what he's supposed to be doing as the leader. And leaders, I think, do face a couple of unique temptations. They're tempted to do what the people want rather than what's right. And they're tempted to seek their own glory rather than God's glory. Those are still temptations that leaders face today. The people are here. Moses is gone. We don't know what's happened to him. You're going to be in charge now, Aaron. Well, uh, all right. Why don't you guys bring me some gold then? And uh, I'll build this nice calf for you. And he gets to be the guy in charge for a little while. But when leaders turn away from God, it doesn't go well for the people. And that's what's about to happen here. A third component of idolatry that we see in this passage is that the message of salvation gets twisted. It's interesting, they don't like invent a whole new religion here. Instead, they just tell their salvation story differently. Look at the end of verse four. They said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, that little phrase, and brought you up from the land of Egypt, does that sound familiar? In Exodus 20, at the very beginning of the Ten Commandments, before God gives the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse one, it says, then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They haven't completely changed like how their faith works. They've just twisted the salvation message. We're still saved from Egypt. The gods are the ones who did it for us. And they still have a festival that looks fairly similar to the festivals that they were supposed to do, that the Lord had told them to have. It's just these festivals end with a party, which is probably more fun. The people sat down to eat and drink. This is the end of verse six and got up to party. The word party means to play. It carries with it some sexual connotation. The people are going to indulge themselves because they've got a new, a new God that they can worship. They actually even end up saying that this calf is the Lord. Again, they're just twisting the message of salvation. I think all three of these temptations that lead to idolatry are still just as dangerous today. And they're dangerous in our own personal lives, but they're also dangerous in the church community. And that's what I want to talk about for just a minute is some ways that we might see this play out, not individually, because this is something that they are doing collectively as a community of faith. And I think that 
we need to pay attention to ways that our faith community could fall into idolatry as well. Um, This week, a friend of mine sent me this um, job posting for this church looking for a pastor. And he wasn't sending it to me because he thought I would be interested. He was sending it to me to get my opinion on it. And um, in the job posting, it's got like, you know, at the top, a summary. And it says, the two primary traits that we're looking for in the next lead pastor are velocity and capacity. (laughs) Velocity and capacity. In other words, we want to go fast and we want somebody who can go fast with us. And we want somebody who's competent and who can manage a lot of responsibility. And we want to help our church go further, faster. And so we need somebody who's got velocity and capacity. I saw another ad this week on Facebook, which I don't get on Facebook a lot, but there was this, you know, how there's those promoted things or whatever. Attention, senior pastors. That's me. (laughs) Discover the one strategy we used to grow from 200 to 2,000. And not just the church I pastor, but churches all across the U.S. have been using too. Get your free study guide and learn the six triggers that create buzz and how you can get more people this Sunday. How to effortlessly get people talking about your church. A simple social strategy you can leverage for maximum buzz. In these two examples from this week, you've got the seeds of Exodus 32 being planted in the church. We want somebody who can go fast. We don't want to wait on Moses up there on the mountain. And we're not really all that concerned about a leader's faithfulness to the Lord or integrity, those are mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put them on the list for sure. But the main things that we need, velocity and capacity. And the salvation message is getting twisted. Do you want to know how we were able to baptize over 200 people last year? Because this strategy led us out of Egypt. Behold, the social media strategy that can create buzz. Do you see how these are the seeds of the same thing? See, somewhere along the way, we got impatient. The work of ministry, the way that the kingdom of God comes, Jesus says, is like a mustard seed. And we get impatient with the work of preaching the word, gathering for worship, inviting people into our homes, confessing our sins to one another, encouraging one another, serving our neighbors. Instead, we want buzz. These things are too slow. What we really need is exciting programs for the whole family and slick branding and marketing and entertaining worship services that are casual and commitment-free. Somewhere along the way, we started looking for leaders with velocity rather than faithfulness. 
And this does not mean that we should never look at numbers or never set goals or that there's no place for godly ambition or that we should just settle for mediocrity. But it does mean that we should remind ourselves regularly that we are prone to this kind of idolatry, even in the church. And this is just as much a struggle for me as it is for anyone. I want Highlands to grow and not even just for godly reasons. But I wanna be able to walk into a pastor's conference thing and feel good about myself. I wanna be able to introduce myself to people and feel good. And that is just the reality of ministry. And you want the same thing for your church. You don't want the church that's boring. You want the church that's exciting. And there doesn't have to be an equation between faithfulness and being boring. But we do need to recognize that, man, it is just in us. It is in us to sacrifice what would actually be good and honoring to the Lord for what would make us feel better and what would make us more satisfied. What if how God works is slow, not fast? Small, not big. Hard, not easy. What kind of things would we give ourselves to if that were true? I think we'd give ourselves to ministry that is centered around God's word. Here's the strategy that God gives. He says that my word will not return void. It will do what I've sent it to accomplish. And so when we have kids ministry and student ministry, I don't doubt that there are things we could do that would be more entertaining than explaining the scriptures to them. But if we believe that ultimately the way that God forms his people, the way that the spirit of God actually works, the sword of the spirit is not a social media strategy or a video game. It's the word. And praise God for people like Jenica and Josh who believe that. If God's work is slow, not fast, small, not big, hard, not easy, we would give ourselves to persistent prayer. Prayer, if you want to grow your church, don't have a prayer meeting. Those are boring. We would have gospel-shaped community so that people who are different come together as one. What makes, what draws us together here is not we all like the same kind of worship music or we all vote for the same kind of people. What brings us together here is we are all sinners and all have a savior whose name is Jesus, who died on the cross for us and was raised from the dead. And we believe that as we come to him, we can experience satisfying life that endures forever.
That's what brings us together here. Those are just a few ideas. Idolatry is just as much as a temptation today as it was at Mount Sinai. We need to stay focused on the Lord. So while Moses is on the mountain, the people are partying and have built this golden calf and Moses is meeting with the Lord and the Lord tells him what has happened. Here's what God says, Exodus 32, verse seven. The Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once for your people. Notice that your people, you brought up from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. Now God here is testing Moses. Moses told the people at the end of Exodus 20 that God had brought them to the mountain to test them. Moses is now being tested by the Lord himself. And God is distancing himself from the people to Moses. He's saying, these are your people. Now, throughout the story so far, he's been calling them my people. But now he's going to distance himself and say, your people. He says, verse eight, they have quickly turned away, turned from the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves an image of a calf. They have bowed down to it, sacrificed to it, and said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord also said to Moses, verse 9, I have seen this people, and they are indeed a stiff-necked people. Verse 10, now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. So God tells Moses, look, these people are so stiff-necked. After all that I've done for them, this is how they've responded. So here's what I'm going to do. I am going to destroy them, and I'm going to start over with you. I'm going to build you into a great nation. Now, if you're Moses, maybe that's not that bad of a plan. Moses didn't want to do this job in the first place. Do you remember Exodus 3 and 4? Moses was like, ah, they're not going to listen to me. And ah, I don't want to go. And now he can go back to being by himself. And he's already at the mountain, the same mountain where he was when God spoke to him the first time. And now the whole plan gets to start over and he can just be the guy. What should Moses say? Here's what he says. Verse 11, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. The word favor means to try and make the face sweet. So God's face is bitter. He wants to make the face sweet. Moses is going to become the mediator for the people here and intercede for them. He's going to intercede for them so that he can try and turn away God's wrath from the people. And he makes two appeals. Look, he says, Lord, why does your anger burn against your people? You brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a strong hand. Verse 12, why should the Egyptians say he brought them out with an evil intent to kill them in the mountains and eliminate them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger and relent concerning the disaster planned for your people. So the first appeal that he makes to the Lord is, look, what are the nations going to say? Remember, 
all along you've been saying, the whole earth is going to know that I am the Lord. They're going to know who I am because of what I do to the Egyptians and the way that I rescue my people. Now, if you bring out your people just to kill them in the wilderness, what are people going to think of you? He's appealing to the Lord's name, to the Lord's reputation. And here's the second thing that he says. Verse 13. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You swore to them by yourself and declared, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I will give your offspring all this land that I have promised, and they will inherit it forever. Moses says, God, remember your promises. Remember what you told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember. And so, verse 14 the Lord relented concerning the disaster he said he would bring on his people. Does God change his mind? That's actually a, an interesting question to, to think about. Does God change his mind? In Numbers 23, it says that he doesn't change his mind. That he's not like a human, but what's happening here? Well, from a human perspective, it does seem like he changes his mind at times. God honors repentance. See that in the book of Jonah, for example. He says, I'm going to bring judgment, and then he doesn't. But he's not actually changing his mind. In this instance, we know that he's not actually changing his mind because he's already made another promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is giving this blessing to all of his sons, and one of the prophecies that is made is in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. It says, The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. Now, this is a verse worth studying. There's a lot going on here, but, but here's the, the, the bottom line. God promised one of the 12 sons of Jacob. He promised Judah that Judah's line would have a king that would reign over all the peoples of the earth. His kingdom would be over the whole world. But what tribe is Moses from? Levi. So if God wipes out all the people and just starts over with Moses, what happens to this promise here? So God is not planning to do this. God is testing Moses. God is sovereign over outcomes, but also over the means by which those outcomes come. So God has promised the outcome that Judah, the tribe of Judah will have a king who will come. But God is also sovereign over the means by which that promise comes about. And one of the means by which that promise comes about is the prayer of Moses here. And the same is true today. God is sovereign over outcomes in the world, but he's also sovereign over the means. And one of the means by which God works the outcomes is through the prayers of his people. And so your prayers mean something. 
So God is not changing his mind. But, but what is going on here? Here's, I think, the question that this passage and the next couple chapters answers for us. When you've sinned against God, what do you need? When you've sinned against God, what do you need? You need a mediator to intercede. You like how that rhymes? I worked hard on that, all right? <laughs> when you've sinned against God, what do you need? You need a mediator to intercede. And Moses is going to be the mediator for these people. He is going to intercede for them. Look what happens. Moses goes down the mountain. He's already spared all of their lives and they don't even know it. Verse 19. As he approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses became enraged and threw the tablets out of his hands, smashing them at the base of the mountain. This is a symbol of you've broken the covenant and now the tablets that had the covenant written on it are broken too. Verse 20, he took the calf they had made, burned it up, ground it to powder. Now this is intense. He scattered the powder over the surface of the water and forced the Israelites to drink the water. So he grinds up this golden calf into the water, crushes it into powder, throws all the powder in the water and says, drink it. No, seriously, drink it now. Get down. No, you too, drink it. He forces them to drink it. Why is he doing that? I don't really know. Um, there's some symbolism going on, I think, that he's trying to help them taste the bitterness of what's been done. Um, I don't know. That's one of the things that, that commentators say. Um, then Moses turns and asks Aaron, what did these people do to you that you have led them into such a grave sin? What did they do to you? And then Aaron, in typical fashion, rather than own up to what's been done, shifts blame. Verse 22, don't be enraged, my Lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know that the people are intent on evil. They said to me, make gods for us who will go before us because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Now that part's true. Verse 24, so I said to them, whoever has gold, take it off. And they gave it to me. And when I threw it into the fire, out came this calf. <laughs> Remember all those miracles? I mean, another miracle happened. I don't know. I just uh, threw it in there. It completely ignores the fact that I got an engraving tool out and I worked for hours on that and you just ground it up and made us drink it all. <laughs> he just passes blame. And so Moses is like, okay. And he stands up and he says, hey, anybody who's for the Lord, come to me. And it's the Levites who show up and come to Moses. And Moses tells them to put on a sword and go throughout the camp and execute anyone who is responsible for this. And they go through and 3,000 men die in the camp. Now you have to keep in mind that there are about 2 million people in the camp. So 3,000 is actually a pretty small number for the grand scale of this idolatry. But it's interesting that Aaron doesn't get executed. Why? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 20, Moses is speaking and he says, 
the Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. But I prayed for Aaron at that time also. So Moses intercedes for Aaron. Even in the midst of this rage, Moses is praying, God, would you forgive them? It's almost as if Moses is saying, would you forgive them? Because he didn't know what he was doing. Even in the judgment, Moses was interceding. And now we're going to see Moses intercede for the people. So they've had this initial act of judgment, but now Moses is going to go before the Lord and seek him. First, Moses is going to seek God's forgiveness for the people. Look at verse 30. The following day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a grave sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I will be able to atone for your sin. The word atone here means to cover or to appease. Moses is entering God's presence like the priest will eventually do in the tabernacle. We'll get to that next week. But Moses is going to enter God's presence and try to atone for their sins. And he's actually going to offer himself as the atonement. Look at verse 31. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a grave sin. They have made a God of gold for themselves. Now, if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, please erase me from the book you have written. What is Moses saying? The book you have written here, this will be in the next verses too, is not talking about eternal life. This is just talking about living or dying on this life in this context. So Moses is saying, would you take my life for the people? If you can't just forgive them, would you take me instead? And God says no to his request. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will erase from my book or I will judge. Verse 34, now go. Lead the people to the place I told you about. See, my angel will go before you. But on the day I settle accounts, I will hold them accountable for their sin. Verse 35, and the Lord inflicted a plague on the people for what they did with the calf Aaron had made. We don't know how intense the plague was. It doesn't say that anybody died from the plague. So maybe it was just something light. We don't know. But why does God say no to Moses' request? Why does God hold the people accountable for their sin? It's not because God is opposed to a substitute making atonement for the people. It's because Moses is not a worthy substitute. Moses himself is flawed and sinful. The only way it would work to have a substitute make atonement for the people is if that substitute was one who knew no sin, who became sin for the people. Then they could be righteous before God. It's almost as if God is letting Moses know that the priest that the people really need, the mediator that the people really need, is one who is holy and innocent 
and undefiled and separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. That's from Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. So Moses is interceding for the people, but he is not worthy enough to be the mediator that they ultimately need. But Moses doesn't just try to seek atonement for them. He also tries to seek God's presence for the people. Look at verse eight. Uh, uh, where am I? Chapter 33, yeah. So um, look at verse one, chapter 33. The Lord spoke to Moses. Go up from here. You and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt. Notice this. God is still distancing himself from the people. Go to the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your offspring. Verse, skip down to verse three so we can jump over those complicated words. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up with you because you are a stiff-necked people. Otherwise, I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this bad news, they mourned and didn't put on their jewelry. Now, do you see what's happened? God is saying, look, I'm going to send an angel with you to the land. You're still going to go to the land, but I'm not going with you. The reason is because you are too sinful. If I were to stay with you, you guys would keep on sinning and I would end up having to destroy you. So it's better for you that I not go. But what do sinful people need? They need a mediator to intercede. And so Moses, here's what he does. He pitches a tent outside the camp to go meet with God and intercede. God says, look, I can't be in your midst because I would destroy you. You're too sinful. And so here's what Moses does. He goes outside of the camp, away from the people. And he sets up a tent where he goes to pray to the Lord on behalf of the people. Look at verse seven. Now Moses took a tent and pitched it outside the camp at a distance from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. Anyone who wanted to consult the Lord would go to the tent of meeting that was outside the camp. Verse eight. Whenever Moses went out to the, to the tent, listen to this. All the people would stand up each one at the door of his tent, and they would watch Moses until he entered the tent. Why would they do that? Can you feel the drama of that? Moses gets up, people are watching him. He starts to walk. Oh, he's, yep, he's going out. He's going out there right now. And they all come out of their houses and they watch him go to the tent. And then when Moses entered the tent, verse nine, the pillar of cloud would come down and remain at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. Verse 10, so they've all been watching this. As all the people saw the pillar of cloud remaining at the entrance to the tent, they would stand up, then bow and worship, and worship each one at the door of his tent. Why are they doing this? The drama of this story is the people know if God doesn't go with us, we will not make it in the land. But God can't be with us because we're too sinful. The only hope for all of us is that one man going out to meet 
with God in that one tent. Do you see the drama? Do you see what hangs in the balance for these people as Moses goes out each day to meet with God? They recognize that their future is dependent on this mediator going out to the tent. It says that the Lord would speak with Moses, verse 11, face to face, just as man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. His assistant, Joshua, would not leave the inside of the tent. What is Moses doing while he's in the tent? He's pleading for God's presence to be with the people. Look at verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, look, you have told me, lead this people up, but you have not let me know whom you're going to send with me. You said, I know you by name and, I have, and, and you have found favor with me. Verse 13, now if I have indeed found favor with you, please teach me your ways and I will know you so that I may find favor with you. Now consider that this nation is your people. And he replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses says, verse 15, if your presence does not go, don't make us go up from here. How will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? I and your people will be distinguished by this from all the other people on the face of the earth. Moses is going, look, if you don't go, we are in trouble. We need you to go. That, the only thing that makes us any different from anybody else in the world is that you're with us. Don't leave us. And God says, I'll go. I'll be with you. And next week, we're going to see how God gives instructions to build a tabernacle so that his presence can remain with the people. We'll talk about that next week. So Moses has sought forgiveness for the people. He sought God's presence for the people. And now... Moses seeks God's glory. Look at verse 18. Then Moses said, please let me see your glory. Verse 19, God said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim the name, the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he added, Verse 20, you cannot see my face for humans cannot see me and live. The Lord said, here is a place near me. You are to stand on the rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. Now, all of this is figurative language. God doesn't really have a, face and a back and a hand. He's a spirit. But he's explaining for the sake of humans, like Moses. For God to show his glory, what does that mean? It really means for him to show his goodness and his name. Do you see that in verse 19? For God's glory to be known, for God's glory to be seen is for people to know who God really is, to know God's character, his goodness, and to know his name, the Lord. And so when God 
shows Moses his glory, he essentially just gives him a definition of his name. Look at verse 5, chapter 34. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord. Here's the definition. If you want to know what I'm like, the whole Exodus has been about people knowing that I am the Lord. And here's who I am. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Do you want to know who God is? God says, I am merciful and I am just. I am merciful and I am just. I am merciful, that is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth. I forgive sins, God says, but I'm also just. I will punish the guilty. When Moses hears this, verse eight, he immediately knelt low on the ground and worshiped. And that is the right response. Then he said, my Lord, if I have indeed found favor with you, my Lord, please go with us. Even though this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our iniquity, our iniquity and our sin and accept us as your own possession. And then the Lord reestablishes the covenant. He gives the Ten Commandments again, writes it on new tablets. Moses walks down the mountain, verse 29 through 35 and his face is glowing because he's met with the Lord. And that will be something that lasts the rest of their time together. Moses would put this veil over his face so that the people wouldn't freak out when they saw him. Now, here's the idea in all of this. When you've sinned against God, what do you need? You need a mediator to intercede. The Israelites, in God's grace, had Moses. You and I have someone better than Moses. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. Jesus is the mediator who does atone for sin. Jesus is able to give his life as a ransom for all. Moses was not worthy to do that, but Jesus is worthy because Jesus is without sin. 1 John chapter 2. Verses one and two. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. How is God able to be merciful and just at the same time? The answer is at the cross. 
Jesus becomes the sacrifice. He becomes the blood that allows God to maintain his justice. And Jesus becomes the blood that allows sinners like you and me to receive mercy so that God can be the just and the justifier of all who have faith. If you want to have favor with God, look to Jesus. If you want to have forgiveness from God, look to Jesus. If you want to have God's presence, look to Jesus. And if you want to see God's glory, look to Jesus. John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. The one and only son who is himself God is at the father's side. He has revealed him. If you're here today and you're overcome by your guilt or your shame, either because of something you did or something that was done to you. There is hope for you, but it is not found in you. It is found outside of you. It is found in a mediator named Jesus. Trust in him. He died on a cross to forgive you and to free you of sin's power. And he raised from the dead to offer you a guarantee of life. Trust in him. Let me pray for you. Father, I praise you. And we praise you for being a God who is merciful and just. God, I ask that your spirit would be active now. There are those here today who are overcome by their prone to wanderness. God, would you help them by your spirit to look to your son, Jesus? Would he anchor them would he forgive them? God, would we be a church who cherishes the grace that you give us in your son, Jesus? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand and sing this old hymn with us?